Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, brothers and sisters, uh, welcome to another episode of Faith Unlocked, our fortnightly show where we discuss faith matters, spirituality and issues affecting uh, the community and each week we have a theme that we choose and um, as ever we are always uh, blessed in this uh, show to be joined by a special guest. So alhamdulillah, we're really fortunate um, to have alongside my co-host Sheikh Shafi Rahman um, and our resident Sheikh, um, we have a very special guest uh, today and that is Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Assalamu alaikum Ambassador. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah and thank you very much for this opportunity Junaid and Sheikh. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for uh, giving up your time um, for, uh, joining us this evening. I know it's uh, nearly nine o'clock in the evening in Cape Town, um, South Africa. You're, you're based in Cape Town? I'm based in Cape Town and it is just two minutes past nine now. So Alhamdulillah, Mashallah. you are one hour ahead of you. Yeah, it takes a long time to get to South Africa, Cape Town, uh, but time difference wise, um, it's not a big difference. No, it's a north-south journey rather yeah. than east-west. Alhamdulillah. Um, so, brothers and sisters, uh, just as an introduction, alhamdulillah, we're very fortunate to have uh, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul with us this evening. Uh, there are very few individuals more qualified to talk um, on this topic of leadership and activism than um, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Um, so leadership and activism is the theme that we've chosen for this evening's discussion. And as ever, um, feel free to contribute to the show by um, posting your questions and comments in the comment section of the Facebook page. Um, and also, please share the link so others can join in um, to um, today's uh, discussion. As an introduction to um, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, a very brief introduction, his life has been shaped by a lifelong commitment to justice and coexistence, and forged through participation and leadership in the anti-apartheid struggle. He has been in the leadership of the United Democratic Front, the UDF, and the African National Congress, he um, had to make sacrifices in pursuit of his values, including spending time in prison where he met Nelson Mandela for the first time. More recently, um, he was the South Africa's ambassador to the United States. Prior to that, he has been a member of parliament in the National Assembly, a special advisor to the state president of the Republic of South Africa and premier governor of the Western Cape province. He has uh, been the recipient of numerous uh, leadership awards, uh, too many to list here. Um, Ambassador Rasul is also the founder of the World for All Foundation. He's active in rethinking the intellectual tools for cooperative relations between faiths, cultures and communities at a global level and establishing justice, dignity, inclusion and equality for those marginalised and excluded, which among others are expressed through his work with the One Africa Initiative. So Alhamdulillah, a very experienced personality, um, at a, a leader at a global level. Um, and Alhamdulillah, he has given us his time this evening to join us. So once again, thank you very much, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, for your time. My pleasure. Um, reading from your introduction, Alhamdulillah, you, you know, you've met uh, um, Nelson Mandela. And as yesterday, Saturday, the 18th of July is the Mandela Day. Um, the timing, co um, it, it, the coincidence of the, the show uh, with this day is uh, very interesting. Um, Nelson Mandela is considered uh, globally as a leader who has, was an example of tolerance, forgiveness and unity. Um, so can I start by asking you about your personal memory of him? 
um, when you met him first time in prison. And what leadership lessons did you personally draw from the life of Nelson Mandela? Look, Nelson Mandela was always a source of fear for our communities, not in the sense that he was fearful. It was what happened to him was meant to make other generations afraid to do what he did. The fact that he was put away for life, the fact that other leaders were exiled, the fact that, um, that, that, that there was a Sharpeville massacre in which protesters were killed. It was a calculated moment in that 1960s that was meant to inject fear amongst a majority black population and to inhibit struggle. And for a while it worked. So that was Nelson Mandela. But as we regained our courage and as we were a generation who did not grow up in the 1960s, we did not have the same dread that our parents had who saw Mandela going to jail. And so we began softly to sing about him. We began, his pictures were banned, his words were banned in South Africa, and we smuggled it um, as young students doing very kind of adventurous things like that. And so we grew up with an image rather than a person. We demanded his release, we marched for his freedom, and we swore to follow him. And it was only in 1987 when I was in Polesmoor prison in Cape Town, he was there and that he had asked for the warder to, 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 to bring me to, to him. It's a long story about how it happened, but Alhamdulillah, that's where I met him. So he personally and requested to meet you? He had that kind of long-standing power with the warden that we had as political detainees were with him on Robben Island. So there was an element of humanization that had taken place with the warden, an element of trust. And he had asked to be able to see me because I was the one political detainee that was there throughout. Others came and went, but I was the kind of common factor. And so he asked to see me. Alhamdulillah, I was completely honored. I didn't know I was on my way to see him. They told me I'm going to the hospital. And in this waiting room, there was this person, which I knew was Nelson Mandela, but did not accord with the photographs I had of him. I had a photograph of the boxer and the round face with the middle path. Yeah. This was not him, a much more angular face, a much more cropped bit of hair, but I knew it was him. And we had a few minutes together. And he used that opportunity to let me know that he found that what we were doing amongst others in the Muslim community of South Africa and particularly Cape Town under the banner of the call of Islam, that that was something that he found counterinstinctive because his idea of Muslim, Muslims as a community was one of being much more internally focused. And yet here we were mobilizing Muslims as Muslims under the name call of Islam, and we were chanting Allahu Akbar and such slogans in pursuit of freedom. And most importantly, we had affiliated as the call of Islam to 
the liberation movement and the interfaith movements. And he found this to be completely different from his experience. He knew individual Muslims very, very well as committed people, but not as organized. So for me, it was a major honor that he actually knew this. And then, of course, um, for the detainees, he asked the wardens if we could use his projector over the weekends, which is a, and, and, and we could watch some of the documentaries that he was watching um, while he was in, in prison. So all in all, that was the kind of meeting and it turned an admiration for, for the man into a commitment to struggle. It turned the idea of the image of the man into a reality um, for me. And more importantly, it just meant that suddenly you had this icon becoming a template for how you want to, to live your life and how you want to exercise leadership. So I, I, I think that has been one of the best blessings. And people always ask me, um, would you want to spend such time in jail again? I wouldn't exchange that experience, that whole year that I was in prison, I would not want it done any other way, if only for that one moment when I met Nelson Mandela in prison. So, so, so if we were to just um, kind of uh, focus on this for a moment and your interaction with him as a, as a person, um, what are the lessons, what were the leadership qualities that you saw uh, in him that really inspired you to do what you did and, and continue with that struggle? You know, the, the one that made sense for me at that moment was here was a man who was in prison for over 20 years. He was approaching 25 years in prison. But this enormous dignity that he exuded, he was in charge of his space, he was not the prisoner. You got the impression that the wardens were the prisoners and he was the free man. Mm. And, and, when, and, and because in prison, one of the ways in which I coped was to teach myself chivs. And after that, I was memorizing Surah Muzammil. And I came across this ayah in Surah Muzammil, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wasbir ala ma yaqulun, wahjurhum hajran jamila. Endure what they say to you, whatever they say to you, and always show them the face of a beautiful dignity. And when I encountered that, I correlated it immediately with what I encountered. And therefore, in any struggle, there is no reason, no excuse for you ever to relinquish your sense of dignity, never mind how much of sacrifice is asked of you, and never much how much pressure and intimidation you are subjected to. Be in charge, even if it's only of your own soul. Be assertive over the things that you have power, and never let your opponent see that any sign of weakness always show the face of a beautiful dignity. 
And that's the abiding lesson that carries you in any situation. And that is the golden thread that goes through Nelson Mandela's life, whether he was the volunteer in chief in defying unjust laws, that dignity sprang at you. Whether he was um, accused number one in the treason trial, that dignity stood by you. Even when he founded the ANC's guerrilla army, it was informed by that dignity that said, life is precious, whether it's your own or whether it is someone else's or whether it was the prisoner and whether it was the one who led the negotiations, dignity, even when you compromise, is never to be forfeited. So that was the most abiding lesson of leadership and activism that you must always have. No one makes you angry. You can be angry, but your dignity determines what you do with your anger. We have a saying in South Africa, your anger is hot but it cannot cook. <laughs> and it is anger circumvented by dignity that is the most useful anger because it is directed, it is disciplined, it has purpose. And that I think is probably the abiding lesson that speaks out of the personality of Nelson Mandela and that informed the entire conduct of political struggle in South Africa. That's very, very powerful. I mean, you can read a lot about leadership and leadership qualities, but when you see uh, in practice um, someone upholding those values and those qualities, um, that really resonates with individuals and then creates that ripple effect, which has created individuals like you to carry on with that struggle in such a powerful way. Uh, Sheikh Shafi, if I could just bring you in um, to share some reflections from a faith perspective on, on leadership and what makes a good leader from a religious faith um, tradition? Mm. Big question. <laughs> I think uh, Ustad uh, Ibrahim is in much better position to answer that. But um, I, I think I, I'll just touch on one aspect which sometimes goes missing, mm. um, especially with faith leadership. Um, the public in, in, in general, when we talk about faith Islam, of course, we're talking about um, the Muslims have this idealistic um, vision of faith leadership, right? And of course, the highest position you get in terms of rank with Muslims in the Muslim conception of leadership is piety, is practice, is taqwa, is God-fearing, somebody who's close to Allah, right? That person de deserves to be the leader. But actually, Ibn Taymiyyah said something really important uh, in, in uh, a siyasa, a shara'iya. He said that in terms of leadership, it doesn't have to be the most pious person who becomes the leader. It doesn't have to be the person who's the most, uh, you know, muttaqi, right? There could be other people who are more pious than this person. But it has to be, he says, the one who can do the job, the one who has the competencies for that particular position, whether it's uh, a local Amir, governor, whether it's the Imam, the grand Imam of the Ummah, uh, the Khalifa, whether it's the president, at different levels, whether it's a judge, right? At different levels, you have the requirement of competencies to be able to lead for that particular role. And Ibn Taymiyyah said that is, uh, is better to appoint somebody as leader who can do the job. So I'd say 
from a faith perspective, yes, the basic Iman Islam has to be there, of course, right? But I think sometimes we make a mistake. We think the qualities that's required for a faith leader is the closer he is to Allah, and that's it. Yes, that's ideal. If you can combine both, it's fine. But if you can't, then then the qualities that's required for leadership is is the qualities that uh, Ustad Ibrahim just described. You know, dignity in the face of challenges, in the face of oppression. It doesn't always require you to be a good Muslim, right? Um, but patience, even the Prophet described as somebody who has mercy for the believers, somebody who's not harsh. People would have uh, run away from him, would have been put off from him. So I think it's about competencies that allow you to lead people and, and get the job done. That's important. Not always, because somebody could be more pious, but they're very weak in leadership, like Abu Dhar, you know, who asked the Prophet you know, make me a governor. And the Prophet said, you are weak, right? It is an amana, it's a trust. You have to have the strength, the competencies, the skills, uh, the characteristic to carry that trust. Because on the day of judgment, it will be a source of debasement and uh, it will be a source of regret if you didn't fulfill your duties. So leadership, faith leadership is about the right person who has the competencies and who can uh, carry the trust and fulfill the trust. That's very, very interesting because I think, um, again, within we can come back to that in terms of reflecting on the current state of leadership within Muslim communities and how the community sees leadership. I think often it's more about religiosity, um, individual following certain rules of Islam rather than um, the qualities of being able to be competently delivering on the role for which that person is appointed. Um, so we can come back to that point um, and, and um, for, for some reflection, but uh, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, I wanted to um, ask you, you, you obviously played a, a leadership role at a global level. Um, what role has faith played in your um, leadership positions? And did you feel that uh, you needed to compromise your faith or your values while serving in those high positions of authority, power and influence? Um, being the ambassador of South Africa to the United States is 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 not a light position. Um, and and uh, you know how do, how do you carry that? Uh, um, and how did you ensure that you were able to uphold your values in those positions? I think the last sentence is very important because when you are called upon to exercise leadership, it's easy once you are called upon within a Muslim community because there's a shared sense of values, a shared sense of rules, the debates are minimal, and you operate within a comfort zone where you are never called upon to, to do trade-offs. But when out of that, your leadership is recognized broader than that. Then you suddenly are in a position where you've got to ask, can you govern a province like the Western Cape province that I governed in the same way you would govern a community of Muslims? And then what you need to then understand is within a governing a community of Muslims, 
you uphold both the values of Islam as well as, in many cases, the rules of Islam. But when you govern broader than that, you can at best hold on to your values, but not to your rules. And so, 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 so there's that interplay between values and rules. And, 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 and so many Muslims are unable to make that kind of trade-off, in a sense. You're not disobeying the rules. You are just making sure that if you ban alcohol within your own house and within the Muslim community, can you do it once you are the governor of the biggest wine-producing province in South Africa? Can you do that? It may be haram for Muslims, but is it haram for others? Your values will tell you you've got to manage it in a way that you reduce the impact of alcohol on society. So an individual may participate in it because his religion and his lifestyle allows him to, but it cannot have an impact on society that is negative. So you may find a lot harder those who make accidents and cause deaths because they are under the influence of alcohol. And so those are concrete challenges that you've got to be able to manage. And if Muslims, Muslim leadership are satisfied with only governing within the domain of Islam, that's fine. But once you have a talent for a world in, in, in trouble, a COVID-19 world that is going to ask for answers, once we emerge from this, can you withhold your leadership because you make the perfect the enemy of the good? Will you do as much good as what you can, even if it is not perfect? And therefore, I think that what Sheikh Shafi was saying, quoting from Ibn Taymiyyah, there are some of us who will appear unpious because we are making our values felt on society. Values of social justice, values of good education, values of mercy within society, values of non-racialism within society. So that's good. But we may not be able to bring our Islamic rules to bear by saying, I am a Muslim governor, so I am banning alcohol, I'm banning fornication, I'm banning this, I'm banning that. Because that is the way in which the good that you could be doing is curtailed because you have chosen almost to, to, to some extent to be parochial in understanding your mandate for, for leadership from within Islam. So I, I, I raise that because I'm sure that the mayor of London may be dealing with, 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 with similar dilemmas. I'm sure that even governors of Muslim-majority countries face those kind of things because their countries are integrated into an interest-based world. Um, and so the point of the matter is there are some people who stand on principle 
in order to abdicate responsibility for leadership. There are some people in organizations who say, I will not join the broader Black Lives Matter campaign because I disagree with this, that, and the other, and therefore they use their principal position to, 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 to become a fig leaf for inaction. And they can justify the inaction by saying, look how clean my hands are. But sometimes you've got to dirty your hands because the world is dirty, the world is messy, and if you can contribute from your values, your maqasid of Islam, into a situation, you've got to be able to do it. And I raise this particularly, and I end on this, I raise it particularly because I know it's a live, real dilemma for many Muslims who contemplate going into leadership beyond the Muslim community. And we've got to be able to mentor them, to coach them, to, um, to, 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 to give them mechanisms and ways of understanding leadership that they are able to make an impact on the world. I think from, from, from this response, it's very clear, leadership isn't an easy position to have, uh, especially if you're trying to lead uh, beyond the Muslim sphere. Um, if you're going to take your leadership position, leadership role, and play an active part in the mainstream society, then it is very, very challenging. And we, um, you made reference to the London Mayor here, um, and you know there may be other Muslim personalities who are in leadership positions where they are having to juggle between um, these issues and these challenges that you were referring to. Sheikh Shafi, your kind of reflection on that, how how can one navigate because muslims need to play an active civic role um, in society you know we can't be just hiding away from these responsibilities as uh, ambassador ibrahim rasul said sometimes you need to get your hands dirty how do you navigate uh, through those very challenging situations where in mainstream society mainstream leadership positions you all sometimes have to potentially be part of a decision that may overtly seem like you're compromising on your faith on your principles yeah, I think, again, it's a very big topic, big subject, but I think um, uh, we have a role model in the Qur'an, uh, Yusuf alayhi salam, um, who, who takes up a position in a, at the time, a, a non-divine uh, system of governance, a non-religious system of governance, or non-Muslim system of governance. So there's lots of lessons to be learned there. It's not unheard of, you know, you can't say, oh, this is uh, not an Islamic society and we shouldn't be taking... No, Yusuf clearly took up a position. There's debates and discussion about what was the nature of that role. You know, did he do, did he have to compromise anything, etc. That's a different discussion. But the issue is there. And in the classical period of the Muslims as well, there's lots of fatawa about, um, again, from Ibn Taymiyyah and others, about people living in non-Muslim lands and not relinquishing their position or, or authority, uh, whether it's a judge or a local governor or an, in administration, if by staying there they can benefit the community, or if by relinquishing their position it brings more harm, they should stay there. So I think we've got to shift the paradigm a little bit. What happens is unfortunately within the Muslim community on a very basic level, and that's fine as well, we look at everything halal, haram. Oh, this, this action X in Islam is haram 
it's known by necessity, even a kid knows this is haram, right? I don't have to be a scholar to say, uh, Sadiq Khan has done something haram, right? He supported something haram or a governor somewhere has supported something haram. See, this, was, this is what happens when you compromise, etc. But we've got a, the problem is, um, even if something's known by necessity and it appears black and white, its application is never black and white in Islam. In Islamic law, in fiqh, its application is never black and white. We find this approach with Imam Abu Hanifa. You know, if you, if you ask somebody, um, can you transport wine? You know, fill your truck or lorry up with bottles of wine, the best wine, right? And you transport it from one place to another. Most Muslims, if you ask them this question, they say, no, no, that'd be haram. You're, you're assisting and aiding in haram, right? Imam Abu Hanifa is of the opinion that if the act itself is, is halal, it's allowed, you're allowed to do it. I.e., the act here is you are getting paid as a lorry driver or, or a means of transport. That's the contract. You're not forcing anybody to drink. You're not producing the drink. You're not, etc., etc. So there are nuances when, when it comes to even basic things, which we might think this is haram, this is haram. But, but beyond that, I mean, that's just one small example where it's not obvious just to apply, this is haram, it must be haram to do X. And we've had recent controversies, uh, I don't want to go into it, in the States with certain scholars and, and, and cooperation with, with the government to, to fight for Muslim rights, but then compromise on something else. I think people take a really immature attitude. We've got to move beyond that, go for the broader framework, not I, I mean, uh, Ustaz Ibrahim mentioned Maqasid Sharia, definitely. Um, not as a means of getting a w rid of the rules or what's halal make it into haram, what's haram make it into halal, no. As a means of a criterion, a broad criterion of maslaha and nafsada. And that's a very valid criterion to use when it comes to mu'amalat, especially. What people don't understand is in ibadat, it's very strict, right? You can only do certain things, which the Prophet showed us how to do. It's in the text, etc. Et in Mu'amalat, as, as in non-ritual worship, there's a lot more freedom. There's a lot more space. There's a lot more room for maneuver. And there's other principles that kick in. There's a lot of qawaid fiqhiyya. So if we broaden the criteria of judging what's, what's, what's the, for the welfare and interest and benefit of the whole community, if we use those criteria, then we can maneuver in this space because this space is not Muslim society space. This space is not yours. It doesn't belong to your culture or your faith. It's, it's an agreement between different cultures, different faiths. And you've got to go on what's maslaha and nafsada, what reduces harm, what brings about benefit. Of course, there's red lines. I'm not saying everything goes, but it should be done with consultation with scholars who understand context, society, and understand Sharia properly. Inshallah, thank you. Um, we have a comment uh, from Sheikh Ibrahim Gabriel. Um, he's saying that uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Gabriel from Cape Town is watching with you. I think uh, oh. reference to um, uh, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul. Um, Ambassador, I mean, just to reflect on what Sheikh Shafi was saying, you've uh, had to go through that um, challenge in, in practice. Um, how have you navigated through that? Any um, practical tips and, and, and guidance uh, that you can share? 
because I think it's really, really important that the Muslim community in the West appreciates this um, approach. Otherwise, what we will find ourselves continuously is hiding away from society um, and not taking on responsibilities and the fear that actually this is all very dirty. Politics is a dirty word, politics is a dirty game, leadership and mainstream kind of influence is very, uh, very dirty and corrupt and it's haram and we all need to stay away from. I think second, third generation Muslims, as, as we establish ourselves in the West, if we are to make an influence, we need to, we need to get involved, as you said, we need to get our hands dirty. So I think it's really important just to dissect this and, and, and delve a little bit into this and share from your practical uh, life in terms of how you um, how you kind of navigate you through that because I've heard alhamdulillah you know your lectures many times um, I've met you in South Africa in Cape Town as well and every discussion that I've had and every lecture that I've heard from you it's all been anchored on faith and it's like a um, you know mashallah a very motivating Islamic personality speaking um, yet you've been in the highest level of South African politics mainstream politics you've been governor of a province and you've been an ambassador to the united states um so you know i think it would be really um, good to get some practical insight from you on that just to greetings to sheikh ibrahim i would hope that someone like him has um better things to do like spending it with his family instead of listening yeah he's a busy person by himself but alhamdulillah i'm glad that he's that is on because part of the way in which I've navigated um, difficult leadership positions, both in the struggle, then in government and then post government has been to establish a very thoughtful relationship with the ulama, not simply to say, please give me guidance on this because we were facing many novel situations, many new situations, and we needed to navigate um all of those sometimes it was to get guidance from them and other times it was to explain to them what are the precepts of the decisions that i am making i have always been sure that while i cannot ban alcohol in the province that personally it is not within my domain i closed the cellars at the official residence so that everyone knew where i stood personally um and what i do in a public domain as a sacrifice um, i also think that if you want to be taken seriously you've got to carry your islam with conviction but with a lightness now that's not a contradiction everyone knew i was muslim and that i tried to practice as best as i could and try to live by its codes but no one ever felt that i was evangelizing them no one ever thought that I was always forcing it down their throat. And so there was an ease with which people um, related to me and could see me for even bigger leadership roles, like going to Washington to be the, the ambassador, because there was a trust in me. And you see, that's the issue of leadership. I always make the point that before our beloved Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was Rasulullah, the messenger of Allah, he was Al-Amin, the trustworthy. You see, trust comes in an unthreatening situation. Trust comes when something 
different, something strange, something new is presented in a way that doesn't threaten them, but that builds trust. And once you've got the glue of trust, you have the responsibilities that come with that kind of leadership. To come more directly to your question, Junaid, this is not only questions for government. There is COVID-19 has spurred the consciences of people. People have had time to reflect. People have felt that the crises in their lives have been exacerbated by COVID-19, particularly if you are black, you carry a disproportionate burden of infections and diseases. And this is why Black Lives Matter has erupted on the global stage as a global phenomenon. Now, the fact of the matter is, here we have a Dinul Islam, a religion of Islam that is unequivocal about race, that is unequivocal about equality, about social justice, about non-racialism, about everything that is good. The way in which we are going to exercise leadership at this pivotal moment in the world is not by screaming from the pavilion to those who are on the field fighting Black Lives Matter, social justice, economic equality. Because we're afraid to be contaminated by those who are on the field, who drink alcohol, who may be gay, who sometimes are Jewish, and this, that, and the other. So we say, no, 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 you know, where our comfortable position is, maybe it's on the grandstand. We will lose a moment of influence in the world. When it comes to elections, because we say power corrupts, let's not get into power, we withhold ourselves. We make the perfect the enemy of the good. When it comes to local councils, to school boards and all of those kinds of things. You know, they have these end of the year parties where they drink alcohol and men and women mix and they wear miniskirts. I can't get involved. And we forfeit the ability to influence the curriculum and the education that's available at the school where our children and thousands of other children go to. That is a highly principled way to abdicate responsibility for leadership. And I would say, you know, in Surah Al-Ankabut, Allah says, those who struggle in our way, we will show them the way. This is not like a GPS that has a perfectly worked out route once you punch in your coordinates where you want to get to. This is a map that you read when you see an obstacle, you find another way. When you see a ditch, you decide we, we can go through that ditch even if our shoes are dirty at the end of it. And, and therefore, I think sometimes we must trust Allah and trust sometimes the fatwa that will come from our heart as we navigate. Consult, reflect, read the Quran, read the ahadith, listen to scholars, but at the end of the day, take all of that and do what Sheikh Shafi says. Say, this is my area of expertise. 
this is where I've cut my teeth. And now I trust myself, having listened to all of this, I trust myself to, to navigate it. And that is the way in which we have to go. And I think, unfortunately, we have a world of many, many Muslim leaders, but very few leaders have actually graduated from democratic practice in the world. We have lots of political leaders who are authoritarian, who are dictators, and all of those kind of things. There are very few Muslim rulers and leaders who are the products of a democracy, who govern by negotiation, who make decisions by trade-offs, taking the best out of the worst and only rejecting the worst out of a bad lot. And, and, and trusting that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the purity of their intention and the, 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 the goodness. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very clear. Sometimes you, there are things which look bad for you, but there's good in it. And sometimes there are things which are bad for you, uh, that appear good for you, but there's bad in it. And your job is to make those kind of discernments as you as you proceed. Just to take a couple of comments um, from uh, uh, listeners, we have uh, Sheikh Fadil Suleiman who's saying Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul is a great example. May Allah bless him. Jazakallah khairan, Sheikh Fadil Suleiman. We have Taf Muhammad. He's asking, what impression or lesson do people take if a leader has to go against a clear injunction in Islam for the greater good, as you say? Um, how does the ordinary person know this and how would they reconcile with their own understanding if there is no um, explanation for making certain decision in the public domain? So leaders are often having to make those decisions, um, but it's not clear to the, um, to, to, to the public. Um, how, how, how do we go through that? Because maybe not every decision can be explained either. I suppose, I mean, shows like this where we are addressing those kind of issues and trying to educate uh, the audience is, is plays a part, but do you have anything further to add, Sheikh Shafi? I think it's education, increased literacy, because until the Muslims uh, increase their literacy and understanding of, of basic uh, Sharia, how the law works, and until people understand the difference between the hukum, the actual ruling, and its application, and what things can change or modify or, or, or temper the application. You know, the, even the question there, things that are clearly haram. Yes, that's the ruling on a particular thing. But when you go to apply it and the circumstances and, and what you're actually doing, it doesn't always equate to that being purely just haram. The example I gave before, people will jump on the fact that wine is haram but they're not looking at the action. What is the actual action? So when people say, uh, let's take, you know, one good example is, um, should you cooperate with people um, where they have values that go against Islam, right? But half of the solution or half of the analysis has to be, what is the nature of the action that you're actually taking? Are you, are you involved in that haram? Are you forcing someone to do that haram? Is there a direct relation between your action and somebody committing the haram? Or is it simply you're just agreeing to live in a space and cooperate on mutually uh, beneficial things, 
that doesn't actually, your actions doesn't lead to that haram. Those haram things are happening anyway. So half of it is about understanding the waqiyah, the reality, the actual mas'ala, like what is going on. The second thing is understanding that sharia isn't always this black and white thing. Um, and, and, and even before that, a really important thing, which I haven't mentioned, is the, the novelty of the situation. The, the, the sharia we refer to, the classical books of fiqh, have been developed in the golden age of power, of empire, of legal systems, of judges, of, of schools of law, right? At the height of Muslim power. And the fiqh reflects that. The fiqh absolutely reflects that. We are now at the weakest globally as an ummah. And then take another uh, dimension. We are living as minorities in non-Muslim societies. The fiqh, you bring those same scholars from, you know, eight centuries ago, a thousand years ago, they will produce a different hidayah today. They would produce a different fiqh book today. They would produce a different set of laws. Yes, the basics won't change, but in terms of application, fatawa, in terms of what you can do, what you can't do, it'd be very different. Mm. Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, you talked about uh, power corrupts and um, the British historian Lord Acton noted power tends to corrupt and absolute power um, uh, corrupts absolutely. Um, you know, this is, a, this is the way people see when politicians become powerful or influential, you know, and they take certain ruling, they seem to be corrupted. This, tension between power and ethics and values um, has, has been there and I'm sure you've been subject of, uh, to criticism and not been uh, given the benefit of doubt uh, by many, um, uh, you know, um, in, in your experience as well. No, absolutely. Junaid, if I, if, I, if I can just say, just to latch on to the question you asked, um, Sheikh Shaf. Yeah. You know, the litmus test about whether you are in the right in not condoning but in not prioritizing certain things because on any given day there may be a million things that go against a fiqh ruling over which you are busy and we've just taken for simplicity's sake the issue of alcohol yeah but the key questions, or there's a three... I don't want our, our audience to think we're making alcohol halal in this show. No, absolutely. I will say it unequivocally, it is haram. Yeah. And it shouldn't be done. <laughs> and it is haram for Muslims. And we would like non-Muslims. And in fact, as we talk now, South Africa has just banned any sale of alcohol um, under COVID conditions now because of its um, negative impact on mm. hospitals and all of those kinds. But the key test on any of those matters, contentious matters is, do you have the right not to participate? Alternatively, are they forcing you to drink alcohol in this case, or to have an abortion, or to perform a, 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 a same-sex marriage? Do you have the right not to participate? If you have the right not to participate, I think that's a tick. Secondly, do you have the right to warn or preach against it from your members? And I'm not speaking about hate speech because there's a difference between warning about something and hate speech about something. Do you have the right, if you have the right to warn against it from your members, from your, to teach about it in your schools, then you are 
I would give that another tick. Do you have the right in certain cases to oppose it? Can you march against it? Can you raise your voice in parliament against it? If you have that right, then I think you begin to, to make not halal at any stage, but you can coexist with a contradiction in that kind of, in that kind of sense. And so this, this tension between power and ethics, I think is absolutely clear that while, for example, you, you have, you participate in power and it gives you access to certain resources and to certain things. You have to heighten your own sense of caution. You have to be even as a, as a kind of secular ruler who is Muslim, you've got to be even more prayerful. You've got to be even more God conscious. You've got to be even more aware of those moments of prayer in your, in your life and fasting and all of those kind of things, simply to withstand the, the temptations which come your way. And, 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 and if you are able to do those kind of things, then you have a better chance of not being corrupted. Of course, calling people corrupt is one of the oldest political games that opponents play, especially when you're an effective leader, because they're not just keen to defeat you in an election, because they don't sometimes want you to be a moral standard against which they will be judged. They've got to break down your morality. It wasn't enough simply to put Anwar Ibrahim in jail in Malaysia. You had to say things about him that would destroy the moral ethical image that the global community had of him because you didn't just want him out of power. You wanted him ethically destroyed. So, so those games are there, especially when your own governance conduct challenges others. And in much the same way, to announce the coming of the most corrupt era in South African politics, they had to get hold of the levers of power in the second richest province where I was. And it wasn't enough to simply ask me to resign. They had to make up a story about why I was asked to resign that wasn't simply about politics. It had to go to impugning the ethics of a person. So the fact of the matter is those are political games that are being played. It does not mean because if you were to ask many Muslims in this dirty, corrupt decade in South Africa, there were many Muslims, Muslim names, who were central to the conduct of that corruption. And so power isn't just political power. It's the power that comes from having wealth, from being players in tenders situations in governments, from being close 
to other sources of power in the corporate world. And so it's a, it's a hazard that, that, that all Muslims follow. And, but I end on this. For me, the fact that Muslim doctors, for example, under COVID-19 are of the most revered medical and health practitioners today, says that our majority inclination in giving leadership, in this case, health and medical leadership, that the majority inclination is positive. We are seen as a force for good. We are seen by and large as an incorruptible um, force, as a force dedicated to service. And that is why Muslim health practitioners are of the most trusted and the most sought after health practitioners in a global health crisis, public health crisis that is unfolding now. Yeah. Now, Alhamdulillah, Muslim um, doctors and medics have played a, an extraordinary leadership role um, in this current situation. Um, Ambassador, um, we're, we're living in what is described as a VUCA world, a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world. And this um, tension between leadership and um, leaders and ethics and having ethical leadership there seems to a major, be a major crisis. I think very few people would argue that we, we, we don't have a global leadership crisis at the moment. Um, and the young people growing up are asking, where do we look for direction and inspiration? What would be your advice to them? I think that this VUCA world, as you describe it, is a world of opportunity. This is not a world of business as usual. And the very young people who say, what are, where are the leaders? Are failing to also understand what leadership they could be giving. And we need to find ways. And I know that Murabi has been an excellent example of nurturing that next generation of leaders, um, of identifying the disciplines, the areas, the corporate sectors, the public sectors, and identifying potential leaders out of that and developing them based on those precepts. Nelson Mandela, in his leadership um, template, would be able to give pathfinders. So for example, one of the critical things that people underestimate about Nelson Mandela's leadership is the fact that when he stood up in 1964 in that Supreme Court in Pretoria, when he was standing between a life sentence and a death penalty, he stood up against his lawyer's advice and said, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society where every person will have equal rights and so forth. He says, it is an ideal which I hope to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. He was challenging the judge, make a martyr out of me, sentence me to death now. But he was also challenging all of us. And this is what I would say to young people, this challenge of Nelson Mandela, go into your soul, deep, dig deep, into your intellect and ask yourself like nelson mandela has done there what is so worthwhile that it is worth dying for 
And if you find that answer, you will know what you should live for. He didn't say we must die for these ideals. He's not a suicide bomber. His purpose was to live for his ideals. And that's why he endured 27 years in prison. And that's how long it took for his ideals to gestate and to wait for its moment of birth. Now, we need young people to challenge themselves and to find out in this VUCA world what is worth dying for, because then you know what you should be living for. And, and I think that it's because we have very a short radius between where we are and what we want to achieve. We have no real view of the long term because it's too complex for us. We've not tried to imagine this, what is at the end of COVID-19 and what this VUCA world is going to be defined by. We know it's volatile and uncertain and complex, but we don't, we haven't put our heads together to find out at the end of it, what are the things that we want from this world? And, 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 and that's why this leadership discussion is absolutely critical. It's about putting down those pathfinders, drawing on the past without becoming nostalgic. Understanding the, the importance of fiqh, but not become bureaucratic. Push back the demagogues and the populists and the literalists because they don't have answers. They will lead us into a cul-de-sac of ideas. This is the time for ethical, principled, strategic leadership that takes us forward by respecting the past, but never basking in the past. That's nostalgic leadership. So VUCA is saying, where's the ethics? Where's the morality? What are the principles? What values are we taking forward? And then finding the strategy for their realization. Well, so much um, to uh, discuss, as you say, it's just absolutely critical topic. Um, uh, we're running out of time. Um, I've just got two quick questions to kind of uh, touch on, at least just um, so that we can highlight those areas. Um, firstly, to Shashafi around leadership and accountability. I, I think with uh, leadership, um, it's not just a, a, a status and a position. Um, it's a responsibility for which leaders need to be accountable. Yet at a community level, we find that leaders get agitated if they are held to account, if they are questioned. Um, your kind of message on how important it is for leaders to be accountable and, and uh, take that view of leadership rather than seeing leaders, leadership as a position and status. Before I come to um, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul with the final question around leadership and vision and your hopes for the future. So, no, I, I think um, that, that, that line about, you know, um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, as a Muslim, we should believe we don't have absolute power. That line should never apply to us because we operate within the power framework within the boundaries of the of the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when a, a Muslim conception of leadership and one of the problems is even today uh, 
Muslims are talking about the concepts of leadership from a very political, economic, uh, conceptual framework. And those frameworks are being built on, you know, exploitation of resources, profit max, the bottom dollar, you know, those frameworks for leadership will produce very different leaders. And it's very difficult just to insert ethical leadership within that system. But that's a whole nother discussion. But in terms of accountability, the Muslims are absolutely accountable. The Prophet made it very clear. That each one of you is a shepherd, right? And each one of you is mas'ul, like you are accountable. You would be questioned about your flock, right? Um, the, the advice to Abu Dhar, same thing. Re re leadership is a religious act, you know, taking on leadership. People think it's not like salah, it's not like fasting, it's not like hajj. No, it's exactly the same. It's a religious act for which you will be accountable for in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's an amana. We have to take it as a trust, intention, purify your intention. So if your intention is for power, domination, oppression, exploitation of resources, then of course you will be agitated when people question you, right? But if you fear Allah and you know your leadership position, is a trust from Allah. And like Omar radiallahu anhu said, he said, if a goat was to die on, on the banks of the Red Sea or somewhere, right? I fear Allah is going to ask me about it on the day of judgment. So they saw responsibility as something very scary, right? They saw responsibility, leadership as pure responsibility. It's something they don't want to take. Um, so it's it, leadership equals accountability in Islam. And um, finally, um, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, um, one of the goals of Faith Inspire is to um, inspire individuals to be change makers in society. Um, and uh, especially in this VUCA world that we've been kind of discussing, um, it presents with all these challenges. What are your hopes and vision of for the future? And, you know, how, how what, what kind of uh, inspiration can you share with the upcoming change makers that want to make a positive contribution um, to society and the world at large? The first thing I want to say to that emerging generation of leaders, and I'm treading on Sheikh Shafi's um, domain here, I've always exercised leadership between two ahadith, two traditions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi the one is, wherever there's more than one of you, choose an Amir. Meaning, never let a leadership vacuum ever exist. Because that's the plague. The prophet didn't say this, I'm saying this. Because that vacuum is the playground of the devil. Whether it is the devil as extremist, as populist, as literalist, as fascist, or whatever the case may be, if you don't fill a leadership vacuum, you play you you open the door to wrong things on the other hand the prophet also warned whoever desires leadership should be denied it because the moment you desire it your ego has taken over and the cause and responsibility has receded so if you can navigate your life by those two ahadith 
you will come quite close to the kind of leader that Sheikh Shafi has just um, as, as just described. Secondly, leadership is about at least three concentric circles. The inner circle is what I would call the zone of control. What are the areas that you have control over where your leadership can be exercised in your family, in your workplace, in your immediate community, amongst your friends? That is where you have the ability to use um, a hadith in a different way to change things with your hand. That's where you can be non-racial and anti-racial. That's where you can choose not to be misogynistic with women. That's where you can choose not to discriminate and to be just and to be economically fair and to pay your workers a particular um, thing so that in a sense, in your zone of control, you are just, you are pious, and you are leading in accountable ways. The second concentric circle is what I would call your zone of influence. There you can speak with your tongue and make a difference. And that is where you say, I go to this masjid and I belong to that organization and I play this sport and I'm part of this professional association and I will speak there so that I fight racism, I fight economic deprivation, I fight dispossession, I fight the legacy of colonialism, I speak against it and I make sure that my Muslim community um, is free of sectarianism and is free of intra-Muslim racism. And that we pay the Imam properly and we pay the Mu'addin properly and we set that example. The third concentric circle is the zone of inspiration. And that's almost where your actions are a dua for you. And that is where how you act within your zone of control. If you are sectarian against Shias, then tomorrow when you go out to Christians and you say, let's have an interfaith, how can they trust you with their faith when you can't even be good to someone who says, la ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, like you? And so, your zone of inspiration is the total then of what you do within your zone of control and what you say within your sphere of influence and that creates the inspiration for you, for your deen, for your beliefs, for your values. And that really is where we are. And so to end this, I believe that the greatest thing that we should be able to do in this very VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, but it's an exciting world. Because old certainties that everyone had is being shaken. We're trying to find new things to live timeless values. And the whole world is looking for answers. The world has never been as ripe. They are disenchanted with capitalism. They know that socialism has had its time. They're looking for something in the middle. And if we cannot lift ourselves out of our own pro problems, our own contradictions, 
we will miss this opportunity to have influenced the world. And therefore, we've got to heal the Ummah. Not make unity within the Ummah, because that's impossible. But we need sufficient cohesion within the Ummah, an absence of fighting, an agreement on the broad frameworks that gives us identity as Muslims. And to be able to say, let's rescue the legacy of Al-Khawarizmi, Ibn Rushd, Ibn Taymiyyah, whoever they may be. And let's put them into the context of the world that we're in today to answer the questions of economic justice, of, of non-racial and equality and all of those kind of things. We've got to be able to get those kind of things right. If we miss this opportunity, the old will freeze over, the status quo will return, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold us accountable that there was this moment of flux and you couldn't transcend your own differences. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, fascinating discussion, uh, a very important topic, although we've just scratched the surface. There's so many gems there to uh, to take and so many lessons for us uh, to benefit from. So, Jazakumullah uh, to my co-host, Sheikh Shafi Rahman, and our very special guest, uh, um, Ambassador Ibrahim Rasul, for taking the time and joining us. And I hope we will be able to invite you again at some point soon, inshallah, and you're able to give us your time because there's so much more to explore and learn from your experience, practical experience um, as a leader at a global level, someone who has been um, leading with ethics and values and, and uh, centered your uh, life around, um, you know, anchoring yourself um, to your faith and yet navigating through all these uh, challenges of uh, of leadership at the highest level so may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept all your sacrifice and give you good health and bless you and your family inshallah uh, keep us in your prayers brothers and sisters uh, thank you once again for uh, joining us uh, uh, for this show inshallah we look forward to seeing you in our next episode until then stay safe keep us in your prayers assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh